Welcome back to The Naked Truth. Peace to you. It's Saturday night, so we're in the Gospels, the red letters of the Bible, the things Jesus actually had to say, the things set aside for us Christians, that 10% tithe of the entire book of the Bible. So without further ado, let's pick up where we left off. We're in the book of Matthew. Um, That's the first book in the New Testament, and we're up to chapter 27, the second to last chapter in this book. We're going to begin at verse 1, if you want to read along with me. And speaking of red letters, one last thing about that. Um, It's a long chapter, but Jesus only makes a couple of statements in this chapter. Because it's basically leading up to the crucifixion. And, you know, that's the culmination of Jesus' mission uh, as far as the Gospels go. So, without further ado, let's begin with verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. So, let's not read over what's happening. It's leading up to the crucifixion. It's the morning of the crucifixion. Jesus has already been deserted by all of his disciples, denied by his ace boon coon, Peter. He's denied him three times. He knew it was going to happen. He warned him it was going to happen. He prophesied it was going to happen. Peter swore up and down it wasn't going to happen, and then it happened. Um, so that's the point we're at now. The thing to not read over is look who's after Jesus. It's the religious leaders, the chief priests and elders, people who should know better and should be focused on good things like life and helping people and the poor, the needy, all of that, righteousness, saving souls. That's not what they're up to at all. They're plotting to put Jesus to death. Does that sound like a church? It sounds like the modern church, actually. Um, But uh, you see, it's nothing new. They were doing the same thing back then. Verse 2. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So they've arrested Jesus. That's what the binding is about. And he's been led to the governmental authorities. Verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. So Judas is one of his disciples who did more than just deny him like Peter did or desert him like all of the rest of the male disciples did. Judas took it a step further and actually sold him out for some money. He betrayed him to the people who have arrested him and are going to lead to his crucifixion. Those holy folks, the Bible thumpers in modern terms, um, for 30 pieces of silver. Verse 4 saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. So let's know where the heart of the Bible thumpers are. They're not actual Bible thumpers back then. The Bible hadn't been compiled yet. The books of it are just being written of it at this point. It's being compiled in real time back then. But um, so when I say Bible thumpers, I don't mean that literally in this case. Um, But that's what they're up to. They've decided to um, use one of his friends to stab him in the back and take him um, into custody. And that's what's happened. And they aren't pressed on the fact that his friend Judas is having second thoughts or buyer's remorse about having backstabbed the Savior. Who, again, is under arrest for something he said. Nothing that he did. No crime that he committed. Only breaking their religious laws. Um, which, by the way, if, like if you've read with me on our other night um, daily readings, uh, they're exempt from for, for the most part. Um, but they hold the other people, the common people, to account for all of those different religious laws that they have set up in what we call the Old Testament. 
Verse 5, Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So he his his remorse about stabbing Jesus in the back, betraying him, um, was real. He went and hanged himself. And some preachers will try to twist that and say because of how the first book, uh, I'm sorry, the first chapter in the book of Acts reads, they'll say, oh, well, no, he was actually um, murdered too. That's not what it says. It just says that he, um, he, uh, his body was, I'm paraphrasing, but, but they're saying after his death, his body was basically splayed all across the ground. And, um, but that can happen if he hanged himself, he might've hung himself. And then when he was cut down, his body hit the ground and was, um, you know, broken apart into pieces. However it happened, it's saying it very clearly here that what he did was he hung himself. He committed suicide. And some Bible thumpers will say, oh, well, if you commit suicide, that's a sure ticket to hell. The Bible doesn't say that. And in fact, Jesus gives us a clear example that that's not what happened, at least to Judas, because remember we read previously that Jesus told the 12 disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the um, kingdom of God. So how would Judas be sitting on a throne in heaven or have a throne of heavenly position like that if he's burning in hell for killing himself? So suicide and it being damnable is just one more example of the dogma that church and religion will feed you and it's not necessarily Bible-based at all. And in the, in the case of Judas, it's absolutely contradictory to the Bible. And it's contradictory what Jesus says in any church or even religious institution that teaches you something that's opposite of what Jesus says. That's what actual Antichrist is. And it's not a singular entity, a singular person. It, Jesus never says it's a singular person. Other religions will say it's a singular person, but that's not what Jesus preaches as the Antichrist. Jesus preaches that false Christ and false prophets will arise in what we call the end times. And um, people who teach that are just one more example of that because that's not biblical. It's not what the Bible actually says, but it is what churches will teach you and wrangle you into believing if you're not careful. Uh, verse 6, but the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. So just like we read on our other daily readings, what the chief priests, what the religious people are concerned about is the money. Making sure in the Old Testament that you don't show up to the temple if you don't have money. You have to have money if you show up to the temple. And when I say money, I mean something that they can use. Something you're going to give to them, whether it's actual money or it's wine or flour or a sheep or a goat or a cow, whatever the case may be, you have to show up. If you show up, you have to have that in hand or it's best you don't show up. And that's what we've read on our other nightly readings. It's laid out as part of their dogma. So you see, once again, what they're still concerned with is the money. They took the money and decided what they're going to do with it. And you see, in modern times, it's pretty much the same way. Um, churches will even uh, give you the stank face, <laughs> the stank eye, if you show up looking the wrong way, wearing the wrong clothes, looking like you might be homeless, or whatever the case may be. They make it all about the wrong thing. And all of that is Antichrist. It's not anti, the Antichrist. It is Antichrist as, against, as in against what Jesus Christ actually tells us we should be focused on. 
Verse 7, and they consulted together and brought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. So once again, like I said, they were concerned with the money and they decided to do something with the money. Rather than put it on in their pockets, they decided to purchase property with it. Something again that was laid out previously and way back in the beginning of the Bible. You see that that's what the religious leaders did. The elites, that's what they did. They enriched themselves through the religion uh, through way beyond the Ten Commandments because those weren't part of the Ten Commandments with all these other different ordinances and statutes that the people are subject to and that generally lead to the people having to break them off some money or some something so that they're enriched by it. Um, again, we've read it again and again on our other daily readings so it should be no surprise that that's what they're still concerned with even now all the way up to the time of Jesus. Verse 8, therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So that word, that phrase to this day appears also in our other daily readings. And it's a sign that what's written here wasn't written at that moment. It was written with uh, in retrospect. It was someone re recalling or rewriting the events and noting that the things that happened at the time of the event are still apparent are still happening to the point where it's documented that's what to this day means it'd be just like saying oh there's 50 states to this day so uh, there's 50 states to the United States to this day so that means so at some future point if say like part of the country secedes like California or some the red states decide to separate um, or whatever may the case may be if it ever changed then if someone looking back would say oh well up until 2022 when the naked truth was still um, being broadcast and you know whatever form you're hearing it is seeing it on to this day it's still 50 states but at some other point in the future that may not be the case so that's what to this day signifies that it signifies that it's to that point in the story of when it's being documented things were that way so up until the point where it's documented in this instance the field of blood it was still being called the field of blood up until the point where the book of matthew was compiled or at least documented to this point if that makes sense verse 9 um and i just mentioned i mentioned that just so we understand that that's what's happened in our other nightly readings or daily readings of the Old Testament. All of that stuff wasn't written at the time it happened. Some of that stuff was written and edited at a later time. And that's what to this day, as it is to this day, signifies. It's subtle, <clears throat> excuse me, but you shouldn't read over it. It lets you know someone's gone back and did some editing. Most likely the scribes. Verse 9, then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying and they took the 30 pieces of silver the value of him who was priced whom they of the children of israel priced so i'm just going to read the next verse because it's paired with that one verse 10 and gave them for the potter's field as the lord directed me so what the person the narrator the one who's passing the message on to us of matthew's gospel is saying is that they believe and it's probably matthew who said it but not necessarily whoever it is is saying whoever documented it is letting us know they believe that what happened there with the 30 pieces of silver is the fulfillment of an old testament passage prophecy in scripture from the book of jeremiah the prophet 
uh, specifically Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 6 through 9. They believe that what Jeremiah saw in his prophecy in the Old, what we call the Old Testament, was being fulfilled with what happened um, with the 30 pieces of silver, Judas, and Jesus in that moment, letting us know they believe that one more prophecy was fulfilled in that moment. And you can look back on it, um, again, the book of Jeremiah, third chapter 32, and see um, the, 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 how it correlates, how it corresponds to the prophecy with what's being fulfilled there in that moment, and that that's what they believe that to be. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him saying, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, it is as you say. So Jesus is now on trial. He's already been arrested. Now he's on trial. And the accusation against him is, are you the king of the Jewish people? The Israelites, as we call them, or as they're also known. That's what he's being accused of being their king. And we already know they're already under the authority of the Romans, who are not religious at all, at least not to their same religion. They have a pantheon, an array of different gods and goddesses that they worship in the Roman society. And that's who is who the Jewish people are under the authority of at this point in time in the narrative. Um, so it'd be considered seditious or treason for some other a governmental power to be arising saying that they're the king of the people sort of like January 6th in America you see treasonous crimes happen right then an attempt to overthrow the government and even kill the vice president and yet you see that's not it's not being treated like that at all those people aren't facing the same sorts of punishments they were calling for on January 6th for them to be executed for trying to overthrow the government because that's what actually should be happening if you're going to be faithful to those laws but we see the law is only faithful when people want it to be if the person is black for instance if the suspect is black for instance then the law uh, is swift and the punishment is swift and the so-called justice is swift look how quickly um, R. Kelly, um, Bill Cosby uh, lots of other people who are black face justice, so-called justice and crime and punishment almost instantaneously. And then you compare that to how someone who else else who has committed obvious in your face crimes, including being caught with top secret documents in places they aren't supposed to be. And yet he hasn't been arrested yet. That's the previous president. I'm referring to the 45th president caught red handed committing crimes and in possession of things that would be uh, get you court-martialed if you were in the military or at the very least get you arrested immediately if you aren't and yet you see that's not what's happened to him at all he's still talking about running for president again and Democrats and Republicans are perfectly silent about it they aren't in an uproar about the fact that some of them were hiding under their desks that day on January 6th, afraid because people had breached the building and were trying to kill them also. And yet, you they act like it was nothing. They moved on and turned the page. And I can't help but believe that wouldn't be the case if the people on January 6th were a majority of uh, non-white people instead of a majority of white people. As you see what happened on January 6th, most of that crowd got to go home. They got to leave the premises. They weren't rounded up. They weren't um, attacked with dogs. They weren't shot. They weren't shot in the back. 
They weren't um, facing tanks and armies. They weren't facing any of that stuff. In fact, most likely, they had many of the people in uniform on their side to help them plan it and get away with it. And yet, you see, America seems to have just turned another page like it was nothing. All because of white supremacy. Because again, if the people who did January 6th were darker complected, you better believe the outcome would have been completely different. It wouldn't take almost two years now to even begin to arrest just a portion of the people, not to mention the charges. Every single charge you could think of would have been weighted, levied against them um, if they were black. But since they weren't, you see, it's the, the justice moves really, really, really slowly and really methodically to make sure none of them are accused of anything that they can't solidly prove, even though some of them put it online when they did it. And I won't go dwell into that, dwell on that, because it's really obvious, and yet it, it, it it's not treated that way. Um, but you see what Jesus is facing? He's facing accusations by the religious leaders for something that's not even... Uh, um, something he's even claimed to be. But he's saying here in his response, he's affirming what they say without actually saying it. He's not saying, yeah, I'm the king of the Jews. He didn't say that at all. He said it is as you say. So it's sort of like how when you uh, were told as Christians, um, let our yes be yes and our no, no. Anything more than that is from the evil one as far as um, promises and oaths and commit and contracts and things like that that we're not supposed to make promises. We're not supposed to swear oaths at all. Um, so a way and uh, an example of affirming that would be like if you happen to go to court, if you have to, um, uh, uh, what other people would swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Instead of doing that, you would just affirm that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And it's a subtle difference, but it is a difference. And so that's what Jesus has shown here. And this is one of the few times Jesus speaks in the whole chapter. Um, he's affirming that, yes, that is who he is, but he's not saying, yes, that's what I've been going around saying or even claiming to be. Um, verse 12, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. So we know from uh, uh, the previous chapter and other gospels, what the what the accusers have done is tried to find false witnesses they weren't looking for true witnesses faithful witnesses it says specifically they sought false witnesses and their purpose was to put jesus to death so jesus not replying to responding to their false accusations um it is very telling because he could have disputed it and other documents that didn't make it into the bible show that other people came forward on jesus behalf people who he had healed um, and uh, one by one came forward saying no and um, stood up for Jesus. Even though this trial took, uh, the arrest took place in the middle of the night and the trial took place real early in the morning, probably before most people were even aware it was going on. Um, but here what's documented in the Bible is that the chief priests are steadily after him with their false accusations, um, trying to get him killed. Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? So the governor over the trial is uh, wondering, well, since you're so quiet, is it because you can't hear them? Do you not hear that they're accusing you of this, that, and the other? What's up? What's your defense? Um, verse 14, but he answered him, not a word, not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. 
So Jesus isn't playing their game. He knows what their intent is. And he also knows what his mission is and the path that he has um, has been assigned and is sticking with. Because remember, he prayed previously that if it were possible, the cup will be taken away from him, that he wouldn't have to face these horrors. But um, he said God's will be done. His, our father's will be done. That if the cup can't be taken away, God's will be done. So he's gone on with the mission. He's continued on that path. Um, he has a he faces faced the crossroads that, um, unlike the ones we face, but a crossroads just the same. And he still continued on his path on his mission faithfully. Verse fifteen. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they requested. So um, one prisoner will be granted amnesty and um, a pardon from their uh, crimes, for their crimes, and granted freedom, it seems, traditionally. Verse 16, and at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So Jesus isn't um, the only one facing crucifixion that day. And in fact, we know from history that crucifixion was a common practice uh, with Roman society. Um, Jesus is just probably the most famous person to have ever been crucified um, under the Roman authority, but at the hand of the Jewish authority. Verse 17, Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? So he's leaving the pardoning up to the people, not um, like you see in modern times where uh presidents for instance will just pardon their friends who commit crimes and then they'll just pardon them for those crimes and their friends are right back out there talking ish getting paid to give um speeches as if they were innocent people who didn't commit any crime and they have their whole base like maga still cheering them on as if they are just a den of thieves because they aren't facing the same consequences that they would for instance if they were black um and so they get to keep on with the theater and don't have any opposition to it, it seems, from Democrat or Republican, even though it's clearly destructive to the nation itself. Verse 18, for he knew that they had hard handed him over because of envy. So even the governor of the trial, the one um, overseeing the events, knows that the religious authority that are accusing Jesus, trying to get him killed, are only doing it because they're envious. They're envious of Jesus' knowledge of the divine, his ability to heal people, his ability to move people to follow him on foot from countries all around, from near and far, on foot to be around him, and the healings and the miracles that Jesus could perform. They couldn't match any of that stuff. And yet, so they're jealous of it, they're envious of it. And, um, and even the governor can tell that that's what's going on. It's not because Jesus is some wicked killer or mad rapist or anything like that. It's just the fact that the religious leaders are envious of his ability and his presence. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man. Um, she's saying, for she has suffered many things today in a dream because of him. And if you've read with me before, and only a couple of you have, then you understand why we're reading that the way it reads. Um, she's saying she suffered. She's basically letting him know that Jesus is innocent, and she knows he's innocent by the fact that she's experienced dreams, revelatory dreams, that let her know Jesus is innocent, and if you have anything to do 
with um, putting him to death, you're going to suffer for it. You're going to have blood on your hands. You're um, taking part in the evil and in doing that. Verse 20, but the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So just like in modern times where you see people like Steve Bannon, for instance, get a pardon for crimes. And it when you get a pardon, that's a admission that you are guilty of that crime. It's just being pardoned of you. And, and yet he's right back out there making speeches and talking noise as if he was an innocent person and still uh, getting paid. And it's it's kind of outrageous, but you see, uh, that's when you let one person have that pardoning power. Uh, one person has it in the case of Jesus also, but he's consulting the people to see who is it the people want free. Barabbas, the one who's um, the notorious, uh, notorious for the riot, just like January 6th, or Jesus, the one who's notoriously healed people, raised people from the dead, fed the multitudes without asking for anything in return. Who do they want? Verse 20, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So just like in modern times, how the church, and I say church as um, a broad term encompassing all religion, has, a, has that power to persuade the politics of what's going on, whether it be bathroom bills or blocking of CRT or block or the abortion bills. Uh, all of those things are contrary to scripture, whether even abortion is contrary to scripture. We've read on our other daily readings that abortion is something that's practiced uh, under certain terms. And it's the priest doing the aborting by giving the woman the formula that's going to cause the abortion. Um, and again, I'm saying it in common English modern terms but you could read it yourself if you read with me before then you've read it yourself also and if you haven't if you're an adult you can go to my website hungtgirl.com and see it there i have a page dedicated to some of these most outrageous things that get twisted um, by bible thumpers now but are actually contrary to scripture altogether and yet they're popular and people believe them even though it's contrary to scripture because people thump their bible instead of actually opening up and reading it and to me it seems like a very very damnable sin it's 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 horrible because so many people are persuaded by it and believe it but verse 20 but the chief priests and elders persuaded so the the religious leaders because we read this already have um have sway over the audience over the multitudes and get them to go along with pardoning the rioter rather than pardoning the savior verse 21 the governor answered and said to them which of the two do you want me to release to you they said barabbas so he gave them the option who do you want the rioter or the savior they made it clear they want the rioter verse 22 pilate said to them what then shall i do with jesus who is called christ they all said to him let him be crucified so it's not like pilate is bloodthirsty and because he could have just, you know, went on and pardoned them both if he really wanted to or crucified them both if he really wanted to. But instead, he's let the person go free or given the person uh, amnesty, pardon, who is known for the rioting. Um, and instead of going ahead and saying, well, OK, I'm just going to set Jesus free, too. Instead, he's leaving it up to them also as to what Jesus outcome will be does that sound like justice that's absolutely not justice but he is leaving it up to the people so that it'll be on their hands 
but not really. And just because you say that doesn't mean you don't also, he doesn't also bear some guilt in what's happening. But he's putting it on the people, and the people have decided that Jesus should be crucified. Verse 23, then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. So I feel kind of iffy about even saying that as it's written, because I don't want to be included in the group that chanted, let him be crucified, leading to his crucifixion. Even though we know that's part of the mission that Jesus even came here for and knew that that's what lied ahead for him or lie ahead for him. I'm not sure how to tense with that. That would be. Um, he knew that that's what he was going to face and um, still went on ahead knowing it's for our benefit, not his, and not directly. Um, so, but the governor's even questioning, he's like, well, okay, you want that one to go free, Barabbas, but why do you want Jesus dead? What did he actually do to you? What is it that he's done that makes him guilty of the death penalty? Um, verse 24, when Pilate saw, um, um, but they weren't having it, they weren't hearing it. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. So again, it's as if you can really wash your hands on something and make you innocent of it. You really can't. That that may make it in your mind, make you innocent of it or pardon you from your part in it. But in the big picture and grand scheme of things, he's gone down in history as the person over the, uh, presiding over Jesus' death penalty trial and the one who ends up putting Jesus to death. And that's not even all of it, because there's still other horrors and atrocities Jesus is gonna face even before the crucifixion. Verse 24, when, um, oh, so we read that about washing the hands. Verse 25, and all the people answered and said, his blood be on, so again, you can read it as it's written. I'm gonna read to you, I'm gonna tell you what it's saying. They're saying his blood be on them and on their children. So it's letting us know and letting Pilate know, the governor know, they don't care what he says about washing your hands in innocence for the blood guilt of what's going on. They say they don't mind. They'll accept that guilt, them and their children. And that harkens back to what we read um, on our other daily readings of what the Old Testament says, that for some things, like strangely enough having children out of wedlock illegitimate births that um that carries from generation to generation now i don't believe that but it is biblical so um some people thump their bible and believe it my own sister for instance um um and it turned out to be a snare for her when she tried the bible thump against me but just as an in, uh, as a example that that's what they're reflecting on and that's what they're saying there they're saying they don't mind the blood guilt for themselves and even for their children verse 26 then he released barabbas to them and when he had scourged jesus he delivered him to be crucified so he granted the people what they wanted he set the rioter free and set jesus up by whipping him um that's what the scourge is he's beating jesus the savior who's done nothing wrong with a whip and then also delivered him up to be crucified and then here comes the next horror verse 27 then the soldiers of the governor 
took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. So this is going to, um, this makes me think of what they call humbling in the Old Testament. And what it's called in modern terms would be um, sexual assault or uh, at the very least sexual harassment. And we'll just read the details so you can understand how. Um, verse 28, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. So most sexual assaults, rapes in plain English, happen, begin with ripping someone's clothes off. And whether it's here in the Bible or um, on a street corner where it may happen, or even on a subway where it's been shown to happen in modern times, you've seen it happen. It was posted even online where a woman was sexually assaulted, raped on a subway and people just stood around and someone even just recorded it and posted it but no one intervened you see the same thing happening there we've read about that in the old testament how it's happened at least twice and um they call it humbling it's a euphemism for rape and um in some cases even it's even condoned by the religious authorities as sick as that sounds it's right there in the bible if you've read with me on our other daily readings or check out the reading on my site you can see what i'm referring to um it's sick and yet it is biblical and you see jesus is facing it here and just one other example of it we've talked about it before um that was well documented in modern times was the stanford prison experiment i think that's what it's called if you want to search it there's even a movie made about it where um very quickly the same sort of stuff happens as soon as you give it seems almost always males, men, give men that authority over um, other people, especially other men. Uh, as soon as you do, it immediately, for some reason, and I think it's because of homophobia and the inner struggle a lot of males, men deal with in their attraction to other men. And that's a whole lot of societal society's fault, religion's fault, but whatever the case may be, you see it again and again. And in that, um, that uh, movie, which is based on real events, you can see that it doesn't take long. As soon as you give some men authority over other men, um, they instantly turn into a sexual um, a, a sexual situation. Even if they don't identify as homosexual, for some reason, and again, I told you why, I think it's because of the stigma attached to it, they instantly go to a place where they want to sexually humiliate or explore with the other men. And so what they've done to Jesus now is they've already beaten him. Now they've ripped his clothes off of him. And now they've gone into uh, the other assaults that um, go with the humbling, as it's called in the Bible. Verse 29, when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So when it says mocking him, that's another word for humbling him. You see that that's the word used in the Old Testament when uh, Joseph, the same Joseph with the coat of many colors, was accused of attempted rape of his boss's wife. Um, she tried to have sex with him. He refused her. And so then when she um, accused him to her, his boss, her husband, the king, she said he went and he, um, he um, attacked her and mocked her. I'm paraphrasing it there, but the word she used was mock. But the uh, the um, point of what she's saying is rape. She was trying to say he attempted to rape her. And um, that mock is just a euphemism again for sexual assault. 
And so them taking Jesus' clothes off, why would you need to take your, the prisoner's clothes off if there isn't a sexual connotation to it, including the beating and the, um, the uh, dressing him up in something else? All just sick, but it's what's happened to Jesus. And I believe it's written very euphemistically. Because again, if you check out that Stanford prison experiment, you'll see it doesn't take long for even so-called straight men to instantly go to that place in their mind because the authority gets to them and they know they can get away with it. That seems to be the real root of it, having that power over someone else. Just like they always, they often say, rape isn't about the sex, it's about the power that you take from someone or that you use or exercise over someone. And I think that's the same thing that Jesus is facing here. Am I saying he got raped? No, I'm not saying that, but he clearly got sexually assaulted Otherwise, why would you rip his clothes off? You can beat someone with their clothes on. You don't have to rip their clothes off and then dress them up in other things, which again, that's part of that whole Stanford prison experiment also. Real people who, when they got the chance, started doing these same sort of things, um, physically and sexually abusing the uh, people who they had power over. It's sick, but it seems to be in human nature, or at least in a lot of men's hearts to do just that so they've um, done that to Jesus and they're um, mocking him and when they say mock it doesn't mean just teasing because remember there's a authority um, element to it and there's a control element to it and so they're when they say mocking it's more than just teasing and they're saying hail king of the Jews um, to um, insult him um, saying oh well you're the king of this these people um, but you're powerless verse 30 you're powerless against the servants of the other nation that have occupied the land. Verse 30, then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. So more physical abuse is what they have for the Savior. Things Jesus suffered, not for his own sake again, but as we Christians believe, for humanity's sake, for our sake. Um, verse 31, and when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. So again with the clothing, again with the mocking, again with the abuse. That's what they did to Jesus. And then redressed him in his own clothes again and continued with the uh with the with the um punishment of crucifixion. Verse thirty two. Now as they came out they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. So they found someone else along the way um, to, um, to carry Jesus' cross, or at least help carry Jesus' cross. And um, most likely, oh, there was something I was thinking about that um, slipped my mind. Maybe it'll come back to me. Um, but when it says they compelled him to, they probably didn't give him much choice. They probably uh, harangued him into doing it, you know, by force, made him help. Um, verse 30. Oh, and oh, that was the thing. So they probably be abused Jesus sufficiently that he couldn't carry the cross on his own as it was and needed some help to carry it between the scourging, the beating and all the other things they did that aren't even written here. Um, Jesus had someone help him carry that cross. Verse 33. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say place of a skull. So they've made it to another area that apparently has uh, is um, similar in um, its structure to a skull or for whatever reason 
It's called the place of the skull. Verse 34, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. So um, one other thing, like I said, I realized in a previous reading is when Jesus says what we call when they have when they have what we call the communion where they drink, drink wine and eat bread. And Jesus tells us, told them to do this in remembrance of him. And in modern times, Christians do what they call the um, communion or um I'll just say it's communion because that's what I know it has and I know other religions call it something else but that's what it is when you drink the wine and eat the bread um in remembrance of Jesus oh and the other thing about that about the sour wine is I realized that when we were reading previously that Jesus when he had that communion said he will not drink of the fruit of this fruit of the vine until he drinks it new with the disciples and our father's kingdom meaning um uh, and it made me realize that what he was given on the cross the sour wine is not the new wine that jesus said he would drink um or you know not drink until that day and basically in the hereafter and then him drinking the wine on the cross doesn't violate that what he said at all because remember he said um he won't drink um the fruit this fruit of the vine again until he drinks it new so specifically he was talking about wine not sour wine and specifically he said new and so we know that this moment where he's being given the sour wine which he it says here he refused and in another gospel at least one of the other gospels it says he tasted it and then refused it but whatever the case may be it's not um breaking or fulfilling what that prophecy of what he said previously because it's not the same wine it's not new wine it's sour wine and um so it doesn't mean that the kingdom came into being in that moment and for whatever reason i think that can it confused me a little or wasn't sure about um if that was the case because i think some other religions will say that that is what happened in that moment but that's not the same thing it, it just isn't Verse 35, then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. So um, um, they auctioned off his clothes. That's what the um, dividing his garments and casting lots is about. But the casting lots specifically is more akin to gambling. It's be, it'd be like drawing straws or flipping a coin. And that's one more example of bad religion taking something that's biblical and flipping it to something and calling it sinful. Um, because again and again, we see the casting lots happen back from the Old Testament, even here to the New. And yet it's not considered sin at all. And, and yet religion, modern religion, will do that. They'll call gambling sin. And yet you see it happen here. And again, it's happened in other places in the Bible. It has nothing to do with sin. It just has to do with taking the corruption out of it and letting basically chance decide not letting someone decide but letting whoever just happens to get whoever has been decided in the big picture grand scheme of things to draw the longest straw or to choose heads when it flips heads or to choose tails when it choose, flips tails or to choose the right number in the lottery whatever the case may be it's not that that's sin at all and yet you see 
like I say, religion will turn lots of things into sins that aren't actually sins according to the Bible itself at all. So uh, to me, that's the importance of, like Jesus says, knowing concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God. You're still free to believe whatever you want to believe, but you should at least know whether it's actually from God or whether you're just following something that some person has cooked up, like much of the Old Testament seems to be. Um, but I just realized we didn't even finish reading verse 35, so I'm going to read it again from the jump. Um, verse 35, Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So we went over the first part of that, because that's what I, I thought that was the whole, the entirety of that verse. But the second part that we didn't was the part about they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. That's the um, a reflection of, again, that's the narrator, probably Matthew, but not necessarily. But whoever it is passing on the story to us, letting us know they believe that in that moment, them dividing his clothing and casting lots, basically gambling for um, his clothing, is the fulfillment of another Old Testament prophecy specifically from the book of Psalms, chapter 22, verse 18. Um, they believe that, that what happened right there on the cross with them casting lots for Jesus' clothes is a fulfillment of, of that Old Testament verse. It's that Old Testament verse, which happened and was documented presumably hundreds, if not thousands of years before Jesus' ministry and mission in the flesh on the earth uh, happened, so that we could understand that it's prophecy being fulfilled in the things that were already documented way before Jesus began his mission, being fulfilled um, with the things that Jesus is experiencing during his mission, during his lifetime, during his walk here on earth. Um, verse 36, sitting down, they kept watch over him there. So um, the guards are um, gambling for his clothes. They've already mocked and beaten him, and God only knows what else to him. Um, and now they're sitting there guarding him um, as he's um, crucified, nailed to the cross. Verse 37, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. So, um, oh, sorry, didn't got to finish reading that one. So verse 37, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So there, that's what um, he's receiving the death penalty in modern terms, and the the um, crime he committed that made him worthy of the death penalty, um, they put up over his head. And what it is is him being the King of the Jewish people, and that again would be considered plain English like sedition or treason something along those lines forming a government within the government it, it's you know it's frowned upon by just about any government even though that's not what Jesus has been going around saying hey I'm the king of the Jews hey I'm the king hey I'm the king he wasn't doing that at all yet him, uh, them accusing him of that was what he ends up getting the death penalty for uh, verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. So again, Jesus wasn't the only one crucified in that moment. Two other people, neither one Barabbas, who was part of the riot, which was what he was accused of, um, but two other people, it says robbers, were also facing the death penalty at the same time as Jesus 
on either side of him. Verse 39, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. So it's not enough that they've falsely accused him, which is also breaking one of the Ten Commandments. A second one also, you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, so you wouldn't want someone falsely accusing you and leading you to the death penalty, yet you see that's what's happened to Jesus by those same people who thump their scriptures and are supposed to be teaching them. Um, you see that's what they've done. And now it's not that's not enough. They also have to walk by. And um, when it says wagging their heads, that's basically like when you shake your head, SMH at someone, like you're just in disbelief at how... Um, at someone's actions or outcome that's what they're doing now as if he's gone around killing people or raping people none of that he's only helped people verse 40 and saying you who destroy the temple and build it in three days save yourself if you're the son of god come down from the cross so now they're also um see this would be actually what we call mocking in modern terms Oh, and I guess they're going to in the coming verses, but that's um, what they're doing now. As if it's not enough to see someone suffering under the death penalty, they're still insulting him and saying and daring him basically, um, well, if you're so powerful, why don't you save yourself? Why don't you come on down from the cross? And they're actually, and what they're saying is, are fulfilling something Jesus said, one of his first prophecies when he was first confronted by the religious authorities and they tried to kill him then also um he told them that they would surely say that proverb uh physician save yourself which we've seen you do in other countries do here in this in our country and i'm paraphrasing that latter part but you can read it yourself i'm pretty sure it's the beginning of matthew when it happened um he let them know that that they're going to surely say that to him and here it is they're fulfilling prophecy yet again and surprisingly enough, I'm surprised it's not um, a footnote by the narrator to let us know that that's also prophecy being fulfilled. It's what Jesus told them they were going to do when he began his ministry. Now he's basically ending his ministry, or at least the major leg of the end, uh, his ministry. And they're fulfilling more prophecy of what he told them they were going to say and do to him. Verse 41, likewise, the chief priests also mocking what the scribes and elders said, so you got the common people um, with their two cents. And now you also have the religious leaders, the Bible thumpers, the main people of the religion um, with their two cents. And what do they have to say? Verse 42, he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. So now as if they um, don't know that he did go around and perform those different miracles he did go ahead and heal people and raise people from the dead and um, also gave that prophecy that that's what they were going to be saying. Now they also, without even trying to, I think, fulfilling the prophecy that he gave again at the very beginning of his ministry, letting them know that they were surely going to say those things to him. And sure enough, here it is. They're saying it. They're saying, why don't you save yourself if you're so powerful? Verse 43, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him, for he said, I'm the son of God. So now it, it gets down to it. They know that Jesus wasn't guilty of those things. They were trying to get the false witnesses to say he said and did. Like, for instance, when they said he was going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days. He, that's not what he said at all. It's subtle, the difference between what they made up and what he actually said, but it's not what he said. And it's one of the things that the lies that they 
came up with to try and get him crucified. And even with that, even with that lie, they couldn't find two false witnesses who could come up with the words and be consistent with the accusation. But the chief priests knew, the people who were actually behind the crucifixion along with the Romans, obviously, um, they knew that um, what they're doing is wickedness. It's not right. Um, and they're even saying the same things. Well, he he trusted in God in, in the sense that when he would ask God for help with healings or the, the multiplying the food, like the fish and the loaves, uh, apparently God was hearing him because the miracles he would ask for raising Lazarus from the dead um, he got so clearly he trusted in God they know that much so now they're saying well if God's on his side why doesn't God help him out now uh, why doesn't God go ahead and save him if he is the son of God uh, is what the rulers the chief priests are saying verse 44 even the robbers who were crucified Um, sorry, I, the page chomps. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So in this gospel, it's saying the two people who were also crucified with him, the two robbers, are um, just like the rest of the crowd, being nasty and sassy and um, saying, why don't you save yourself? Why don't you uh, get down from the cross? At least one of the other gospels, I'm pretty sure it's Luke, uh, says similar that the uh, one of the robbers said that but when one of the robbers said that, he was rebuked by one of the other robbers, one of the other people who were crucified at the same time. And in that moment, he found salvation according to um, that gospel. I'm, I am pretty sure it's Luke where that happened. And that gospel, and I guess we'll get to that at another point, God willing, um, is an example that you don't have to be baptized to have salvation because Jesus told that person, to, assuredly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise he didn't say today we're going to both go to heaven he didn't say oh, we're going to make it to heaven and he's going to go to hell he didn't say it at all and I, like I've mentioned before in the examples Jesus gives us of people when they die in the examples Jesus gave in the book of Luke for instance I think it was chapter 16 don't quote me on that it might be chapter 17 but it's in the book of Luke for sure in the example Jesus gave us of the rich man who died and Lazarus who died, uh, and and then here and with the not here in Matthew but in Luke, with at least one of the people who was crucified with him who had that change of heart who found salvation in that moment, uh, when he dies, Jesus says uh, talks about a place called paradise, not heaven. So maybe heaven is a euphemism for paradise, but um, I mean paradise may be a euphemism for heaven. But not necessarily. It may indeed just be a whole other place, a whole other um, place, I guess would be the place to say, of, um, of travels for the soul when it's not lost. And in, both ex in those examples in Luke that Jesus gives, neither of the people ends up in hell, and neither of the people ends up in heaven, neither of the people ends up meeting God, and neither of the people ends up meeting the devil. So again, religion will take what the Bible actually says, throw, cast it aside, and then preach something else altogether that's not even scriptural, not even biblical, and get masses and masses of people to believe it and repeat it for generations, even though it's not scriptural at all. Just like Adam and Eve being the first people is not scriptural at all. And yet, I believed it myself up until recently, but if you actually read what's in there, 
They're not the first people. Those people didn't make it to heaven, didn't go to hell. And yet it's not what church or religions will teach you at all. Um, so again, like Jesus says, if you want to know, do the will of God, this is the will of God to know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. That lets us know everything people preach as doctrine, as scripture is not scripture. It's not doctrine. It's not from God. And much of it is just baloney people things people cook up to keep people wrangled into a belief system that it has nothing to do with god at all but has everything to do with getting you to keep showing up and tuning into it and believing it i'm sorry i had to uh, spray a critter i saw um i'm not a big fan of the bugs um so anyway um that's what's happened now at this point with the um with the crucifixion he's being reviled picked on by the people who have power over him even um at his lowest moment point of death or physical death i should say um verse 45 now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land so sixth hour would be noon ninth hour would be three o'clock so what's happened is what we'd call in plain english something like an eclipse in that moment in that moment verse 46 and about the ninth hour jesus cried out with a loud voice saying eloi eloi i'm sorry eli eli lama um i'm not going to read the rest of it um that is my god my god and then you can see why i didn't read the rest of it i don't want god to forsake me so i'm not going to read what it says there and i know that may seem trivial to you so if it does feel free to read it out loud yourself I'm not going to, but you can see that that's what's being said there. And so, and it can be taken a couple of different ways. The way it probably should be taken is that Jesus is um, reflecting back on, or in that moment, Jesus is quoting scripture again. Uh, that's a verse taken from the book of Psalms, chapter 22, verse 1. And if you take it as, um, as, I take it as prophecy. Jesus is letting us know that the book of Psalm chapter 22 is um, that verse, that that whole chapter, actually much of that chapter, is one of the chapters that um, talks about the um, events that would happen to Christ, the things that would happen to the Messiah when the Messiah makes his appearance in the flesh and gets rejected by the people who were supposed to be looking out for his coming. Um, so what Jesus is doing there is he could be asking God, why are you forsaking him? I don't think that that's what he's doing. But I think what he is doing is, again, teaching, saying, letting us know that if you want to look back on the scriptures and letting the religious leaders know that what's happening is a fulfillment of those scriptures, that they're supposed to be teaching people, that they're supposed to be looking out for. He's letting them know y'all are fulfilling more prophecy in the things you're doing. And, and what they're doing is fulfilling the things that would happen, or I mean, that are that are described in the book of Psalms, chapter 22. And it goes way beyond just um, these words of the um, that Jesus just said. Um, it talks about the different um, the, the abuse that he was going to face and all those different things and the suffering that he was going to go through. Um, the chapter 22 of Psalms does. So I think that's what's actually happening there. Um, 
and about not reading it as it's written, you could see why I wouldn't read it as it's written. Again, I wouldn't want God to forsake me. It's tough enough feeling like God's forsaken me before in life. I don't want to speak power into that myself. And just in case this is your first time reading with me and you don't know why I don't read it exactly as it is, you can check out Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 37, and Jesus makes it clear. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. I take that to mean the words you say have energy. They manifest themselves. Um, the good things you say and the negative things you say. And even inadvertent things you may say like, why has God forsaken you? You may manifest being forsaken just by saying that. And that may be why it's felt like being forsaken before in life. For myself, I'm saying personally. Because I've read that out loud and said that out loud and maybe have manifest that feeling for myself um, in life, throughout life. Um, so that's one more reason I don't do it anymore. I don't read that verse out loud. Of course, you can read it to yourself. It's not the same thing. And it's one more subtle difference. You can still read it. I just wouldn't recommend voicing it, putting the energy of your voice into it. Because it seems the universe, the world which is what God actually loves. Remember, it's not necessarily the people, it's the world. For God so loved the world. It's the world that God loves. And it may be because the world is sort of like a computer. It doesn't know your um, intents. It just knows what you say and what you do. And if you say something like that, it may have a way of manifesting that for you. Just as if you do a certain thing, whether you mean to or not, it manifests some um, reactions. Um, the action has a reaction, whether you, whatever your intent is. And it seems like much of the world works that same way. And maybe that's what God loves about it, seeing what the world is going to turn out for us as we manifest different things in our life, lives through the things we say and the things we do. But that's a whole other um, lesson or reading. Um, so at this point, Jesus has said that on the cross. Um, and if you take it the other way, that he does feel like he's been forsaken in that moment, which is possible too, then I would, if you believe it that way, I would say that um, maybe Jesus is saying in that moment, that's when his spirit is parting from his body. That in that sense, God is forsaking the flesh. The spiritual part of Jesus is forsaking or leaving the physical part of Jesus. So maybe that could be um, why he said it also. But again, I think it was, he's quoting scripture and fulfill, letting us know and letting them know the things they're doing are actually fulfilling prophecies um, that they should be aware of, but seem to be oblivious to. Verse 47, some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. So Jesus is being misunderstood, just like in modern times, he gets misunderstood. Um, he's being misunderstood there, even on the cross by the people witnessing the events and hearing the things he's saying. They're thinking he's calling for Elijah and Elijah is an Old Testament prophet, um, but he's one of the only people in the Bible who makes an appearance, maybe the only person in the Bible who doesn't die um, and in the Old Testament, he exists in the Old Testament and he um, is carried away in what we call a UFO, a fiery flying chariot carries him away in the Old Testament. And then 
in what we call reincarnation, he appears in the New Testament as John the Baptist. And that's according to Jesus, that he is John, that John the Baptist is that Elijah who was to come. That's Jesus saying that. And again, religion and thumpers will tell you otherwise. They'll tell you reincarnation isn't a thing. And yet we read it in the Bible right there, even by Jesus saying it. And trying to convince someone of that, um, I don't know. I wouldn't waste time trying to do it. You can just, you can lead a horse to order, but you can't make him drink. You can show someone the truth, tell someone the truth. You can't make them believe you, even if they, even if Jesus is the one telling it to them. So here you see, they think he's calling for Elijah. So that's who Elijah was, the one carried away in what we call UFO, made a reappearance again on the Mount of Transfiguration as it's uh, known when Jesus basically became luminous and had Moses and Elijah appear to him and to the other disciples and to the disciples. The disciples also witnessed it according to the Gospels. That's who Elijah is and that's who they believe Jesus is calling for. So it sounds to me like they believe that um, that prophecy of Elijah coming again before the great and terrible day of the Lord, I think it's how it reads in the Old Testament book of Malachi, they believe, at least some of those people believe, that, okay, that was the moment where Elijah was going to appear and probably swoop Jesus down off the cross and prove he is the Messiah. Um, but they're a day late and a dollar short. That's not, what, that's not even what he was saying. He wasn't calling for Elijah. Verse 48, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. So, Someone there on the site um, heard Jesus cry out and they've um, got some of that wine, the sour wine, basically vinegar, it sounds like, and um, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink, I guess thinking it'll ease his suffering. Verse 49, the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. So there it is. They think that the uh, prophecy of Elijah coming before the Christ, before the Messiah, is about to be fulfilled. And um, and they think that maybe Elijah is going to make an appearance. Since again, he didn't die in the Old Testament. He was carried away in a UFO, um, in a flying object, identified as a fiery chariot. Um, so maybe they think that Elijah is going to make an appearance now. Verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Jesus cried out in suffering, and he passed away. Verse 51, and so that yielded up his spirit part, um, again, makes me, um, is why I said that maybe that's what the part about uh, why have, why when he's, the part about forsaking him, maybe that's what's um, being expressed there, that the spiritual part of Jesus, his spirit, is parting from his physical body. Um, that could be another way of interpreting what he said there. Verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. So the veil of the temple would be basically a curtain separating the um, the holiest parts of the temple from the more common parts of the temple. It would be like if you go to church, and there's a part for the congregation to gather there's a part for the choir to gather there's a part like the pulpit for the preacher to gather and um, the deacons and then there's another part um, even separate from all of that that only the preacher the priest whoever is in charge can um, access and whoever they may allow access to it 
um, to access. So that veil, that curtain separating the holy from the rest was torn in two. And to me, that um, signifies an end to that religion, to that branch of this religion. And remember, there are different sects of um, of that religion, just like most every religion. There's the Orthodox, and then there's also all sorts of other um, denominations that say they're under that same umbrella of the religion. Sort of like Christianity has other... Um, I believe red-letter Christianity is the actual one, but I'm sure that's what every religion would say. But to me, it's clear if it's what Jesus said, that's, um, by definition, Christianity. If Jesus said it, that's Christianity. If Jesus didn't say it, uh, it may still be, it may try to be under that umbrella and may even be under that umbrella of Christianity. But is it really Christianity if Jesus didn't say it? Uh, it's not to me, but it's that same sort of sense. So in that tearing of the veil, I think what was being signified there was that's the end for that religion. They were supposed to be looking out for these different prophecies being fulfilled, these different scriptures coming to life, and the arrival of Christ, Messiah, his mission, his uh, words, his actions, his suffering, his death. They were supposed to be able to to be aware of all those things and the fact that they let all those things uh, fly right under their nose and even fought against some of those things and even in trying to oppose those things still ended up fulfilling some of those scriptures I think that was signifying that's it time's up you you've had it you missed your chance like Jesus says because um, they didn't know the time of their visitation so Jesus was right there before them and they didn't realize it. they rejected it and I think in that rejection that's what led to the end of that sect of the religion. And we know it ended um, not in that instant, um, but around another generation later, 30 to 40 years later, when the city of Jerusalem was um, conquered. It was surrounded. The people were starved out to the point of cannibalism, another prophecy Jesus gave along the way. And um, the temple was destroyed, not one stone left upon another. And to this day, almost 2,000 years later, it hasn't been rebuilt. And the only thing left of the uh, area was the Wailing Wall, a portion of the Wailing Wall, which was not a part of the, the prophecy. He didn't say the wall would be torn down. He said the temple would be, and not one stone would be left upon another. And when they conquered the city and tore down the temple, they made sure to make sure they didn't leave one stone upon another, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy and also ending the, the that sect of the religion. The Pharisees and Sadducees, that, uh, at least one of them, that was it. Um, around the time of the temple being destroyed, so was that branch of religion. It was destroyed, it ended. You don't have to take my word for it, you can wiki it, look it up and you'll see. It was around 70 AD. Um, verse, oh, not to mention all the natural disaster, um, natural uh, reactions to the Savior being crucified, the earthquake, and the rocks being split. So like landslides and earthquakes happen in that moment of Jesus' passing. Verse 52, along with the eclipse, verse 52, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So again, this isn't red letter. This is um, the narrator or whoever is passing along the Gospel of Matthew to us, letting us know that 
in that moment, lots of supernatural things happen. Lots of natural things like the earthquakes, the eclipse, and the rock slide, but also supernatural things like graves actually opening up and bodies coming out of them. And it says of the saints who have fallen asleep. It's not Jesus calling them saints. It's, um, it's again, the narrator letting us know that people who are considered saints, and it says had fallen asleep, meaning they died, um, but it's as if they had just been asleep, just like Lazarus. Um, he died, but since he's back to life, clearly whatever experience he was in turned out to just be asleep. Just like Jesus when he raised the little girl and said, Talitha Kumi, and raised her back to life. He said, the girl's not dead, she's sleeping. And the people knew she was dead, physically dead. But in the grand scheme of things, the big picture of things, in the spiritual sense of things, it's only asleep. And I think as Christians, red letter Christians, that's how we should look at um, um, passing. Um, when you're faithful, when we're faithful, it turns out it's just asleep. It's um, a, a, it's asleep to the world, but spiritually still awake, still alive. Verse 53, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So they're not just um, visions. They're not just uh, ghosts. They actually were resurrected in that moment. In Jesus's passing, life was given back to, it says, many of the saints who had, it says, fallen asleep. So they had died and were buried. And yet at Jesus's crucifixion, at his passing, they were revived and actually appeared to many people. So it's not just uh, one or two people who saw it. They appeared throughout the city. Verse 54, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. So remember, the centurions are Romans. They don't follow the same religion as the people of Jesus, the religion Jesus was born into. They don't follow that at all. Um, and yet they recognize by the events and uh, things that have happened that Jesus was the uh, was the son of God. He's the savior. He's the Messiah. Even people not of the religion recognize that. Verse 55, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar. So um, the disciples forsook, Je forsook Jesus and fled. Um, but some the male ones and so did some of the females but the females stayed close enough that they could still monitor and see what was going on and um, um, in at least one of the other gospels not all of them forsook him Jesus mother for instance was there at his side at the cross while he was still alive and at least one of his disciples John also remember that's the adoption Jesus performed just before uh, or once he, he while being nailed to the cross, one of the last things he did was perform that adoption. It, it didn't take any paperwork. It didn't take any government. Jesus said, woman, behold your son. And he told the disciple, behold your mother. That's what we'd call in plain English an adoption. And it says even from then on, they were they treated each other like family. I'm paraphrasing that part, but that's what happened. An adoption, made, letting us know family, and this is comforting to me, Family is way beyond who you share blood ties with. Family is who actually loves and respects you. You don't have to be related to someone blood and by blood at all for them to be family. And Jesus even tells us again and again, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. That's what makes family in the Christian sense. 
And it's been a great comfort to me, especially here lately. I was given 11 brothers and sisters. And most of the time, to be honest with you, I feel alone as far as that, in that sense, uh, as far as family goes. Because some are allies sometimes, um, and some seem to be allies sometimes, and some outwardly despise me sometimes. So it's uh, that's not who family is. Family is, is goes beyond blood. I choose to believe, like Jesus says, family are those who hear the word of God and do it. And those things are not things that Jesus tells us to do. So if people aren't doing them, they're not family. As painful as that is sometimes, and I admit it is painful sometimes, that's not family. And if it's not family, I don't need it. If it's not love, it's not real, I don't need it. It's toxic in many cases. And so I'm actually to a point where I'm about ready to just cut them off. And for my own sanity, for my own sake. Um, and it's probably for the best. Like Jesus says, we have to be willing to. Um, I think it. I'm paraphrasing. Jesus says, whoever does not hate his uh what is it wife and children mother and father sister and brothers yes and his own wife also cannot be my disciple we really do have to be willing to separate jesus and as and put jesus on a shelf all alone put our um faith in jesus our belief in jesus our christianity our um seeking god on a level all by itself apart from anyone else and even apart from our own desires in our own life um, to actually be disciples of Jesus. And he says, and if you don't, you cannot be his disciple. And it's painful, but it, I think it actually is necessary. So it's almost like when you prune uh, a plant, it's um, cutting away parts of the plant, but for the greater good and life of the plant. And I, that's how I have to, it, that's how I have to look at it. Verse 56, among the whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So those are the women who've stayed faithful to Jesus to this point. It says looking on from afar, but like I said, at least one of the other gospels says his mother was nearby on hand with uh, before he even passed away on the cross. And I believe that's the where it says Mary the mother of James and Joseph. We know James and Joseph are... Um, two of the names of two of Jesus's brothers, letting us know that even though religion will say Mary was a virgin perpetually, she had other children. She had at least some other brothers. They named them by name in the Gospels and had at least three sisters. Um, so again, believe religion if you want to, or you can believe what your own eyes tell you. And it says it very clearly, Jesus had brothers and sisters. And Mary was a virgin when she was married. So if those other brothers and sisters aren't um, um, from Mary, then they had to have been from Joseph before he married Mary. But that seems even less likely. But whatever the case may be, Mary was among the ones standing there um, watching the events as they happened. But so also were Mary Magdalene. And um, and uh, says the mother of Zebedee's sons, that would be if I remember right, James and John, their mother's name was Zebedee. So she was faithful also to the end to at least see what, uh, how the events would um, unfold and finalize, at least as far as the crucifixion goes. Verse 57, now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, 
who himself also had become a disciple of Jesus. So uh, Joseph of Arimathea has gone down in history also as one of Jesus' faithful disciples. And also religion will twist his existence. Some religions will try to say Joseph was Jesus' uncle. The Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at any point. And in fact, here it just tells us here where he became a disciple of Jesus. It doesn't say he was his uncle and then became a disciple. And not only that, it if he were Jesus' uncle, it seems like it would have been mentioned beforehand. And in the next part of the next verse is going to make it clear that he's probably not Jesus' uncle because of what we read in the Old Testament. But let's keep reading to see what I'm talking about. Um, so Joseph of Arimathea, one of Jesus' disciples, has also come at this point. Verse 58, This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. So some religions will twist that and say Joseph of Arimathea was given Jesus' body because he's the nearest of kin. He's his kinsman redeemer. They like to use that term because that's what it's called in the Old Testament. But like I just said, we know that that's not the case that he's not the nearest of kin because one, Jesus' mother is right there. She's the mother of James and Joseph. And we know also he had brothers and sisters. We read that also previously. I think the brothers' name were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas were the names of Jesus' brothers. And his sisters, they didn't get named by name, but they were also around during the time of Jesus' ministry. So we know nearest the kin would have been one of them. It wouldn't have been Joseph of Arimathea. So even though religion will tell you that, preachers will tell you that and get you wrangled into their religion and uh, false teaching and keep you coming back for it, that doesn't make it any, it any less false. It makes it one more thing that is an example of what Jesus tells us the will of God is to know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So someone telling you that Joseph of Arimathea was Jesus's uncle is just their speculation and them making things up. And you know it's the making things up about the nearest of kin or kinsman redeemer because like I just said he had brothers and sisters and family present at the time. So that's not why the body was granted to Joseph. Um but whatever the case may be, he was granted the body. Um, let's see. Verse 58 is where we left off. Um, did we? This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. Okay, so we read that. Joseph got Jesus' body. Verse 59. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. So that makes me think of mummification where they wrap people in bandages. And that's even how it's basically described how Lazarus was um, buried um, in the cave he was buried in and how Jesus was buried with strips of linen and spices. And all of that points to me, uh, at least makes me think of mummification, which is an ancient Egyptian uh, technique, African technique for burial letting us know again that those um the events that are happening at this time and it, throughout the bible happen in very close proximity to africa uh, and that's to let us know all of these people are not blonde and blue no matter what religion may try and whitewash it to be we know that they aren't not that it matters to me it doesn't matter to me what color someone is but it does matter to me that people may try and whitewash something and make things appear as though they aren't 
And that's important because that's what this whole blocking of CRT is about, the blocking of teaching what American history is about, the, his, the slave history of America is about. Um, it's all a, a slippery slope of lies that once you get to believe one lie, then it's easier to get you to believe a whole lot of other lies, especially if you choose not to open up the Bible and read it, but just thump it and believe whatever someone tells you about it. It's a slippery slope, and that slope leads downhill, and I believe downstairs to the flames. But it's a choice. You don't have to believe that. You can actually use your mind or use your eyes and believe what you read if you're going to believe anything rather than what just someone tells you. Whatever the case may be, though, Joseph was granted the body, and he's wrapped it in linen. Um, again, sounds like mummification. Um, verse 60, and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. So Joseph has handled Jesus' burial, uh, wrapping it in the uh, linen and putting it away in the tomb. And sealing the tomb with a large stone against the door so that it can't be defiled, so that it's sealed off. Verse 61, and Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So um, they witnessed it. Jesus' own mother witnessed the burial and the putting away of his body into the tomb, letting us know the disciples didn't steal it away uh, like some religions may or uh, even atheists may choose to believe. The disciples didn't have the balls to even be there. The women were there to witness the end of how things turned out. And um, so why in the world would the disciples who forsook him and fled when he was arrested suddenly have the nerve to show up and steal the body away from the Roman armed Roman authorities who are guarding the tomb? It doesn't make sense. Um, but so they, um, the, uh, his family, his friends, his followers, the females have witnessed his burial and his, um, his death and his burial. Verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. So, um, the it says the next day. That doesn't mean um, when the sun was up. The next day, and um, for this religion and for this time, begins at sunset. So we know these things happen from noon to three, and then um, at three, that's when he basically gave up the ghost, passed away. So then his body was laid to rest, presumably before the sunset, because remember, it's uh, the Sabbath and all of that are approaching. And so there's certain rules laid out in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, of what you can do on that Sabbath as far as work and activities. So almost certainly they put him in the tomb before the sun set. So now the sun has set. That's the next day. That's the first. Um, that's a new day. And that's also lets us know Jesus has already passed away. So that's beginning the first night of his um, death. And now the next day, which is actually, say, six o'clock, that same a uh, few hours after he's passed away. That's the next day. So we're into the very first day of his um, of his um, the period of his death. I guess it'd be the plainest way to say it. Um, so they've gathered together to. Um, to Pilate, to the governor who oversaw the trial. Verse 63, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. So they just told on themselves what they just said. They're quoting what he said, what he actually said, 
uh, even though he didn't even say that either. He said, um, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it again. And I'm quoting as closely as I can, and but trying not to paraphrase, but that's closer to what he said than what they're saying. But what they're saying there is letting us know they knew all along. He didn't say anything about he was going to tear down the temple and build it up in three days. He knew They knew very well he wasn't talking about the physical temple where they go to and worship. They knew very well he was talking about his physical body was going to be resurrected in three days. And they just revealed it with what they said right there, even though that when they were trying to, when they were during the trial and the crucifixion, uh, even though it may not be written uh, verbatim in this gospel, you can read it in the other gospels. They accused him of saying that he was going to tear down the temple and, and build it up in three days. They knew good and well that's not what he was talking about at all, as revealed by what they just told the governor. And they're uh, identifying him as the deceiver, even though they just revealed themselves to be the liars. It's scandalous. But so they're, what they're saying is they're gone to the governor and they're saying, he said he's going to rise up in three days. Verse 64, therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. So again, it says um, the next day, letting us know. So don't get that twisted or misread that. And I don't know, can't believe why I never noticed it before. The next day was just a couple hours after he was crucified. Because again, the next day starts at sunset. So they're already into the next day. But it's technically, by modern standards, the same day. Because it's just a couple, a few hours after he passed away. It's at sunset. So they've gathered to the governor and said that they know he's supposed to, he's, he's prophesied that he's going to rise up in three days. So why don't you just guard the tomb to make sure no one can get to it and pretend like he's resurrected. And we know it's just a couple hours later because they just put him in the tomb. They just sealed up the stone. And there was no time between that and the time where the Pharisees, the leader, the religious leaders have gotten to the governor to um, get him to seal up and guard the tomb. It's just a couple hours later, if even that. He was just put in the tomb. And so they've already gathered together after sunset to the Roman authorities to say, seal it up, make sure no one gets near it so that they can't pretend like they took his, so they can't take his body away and then pretend like he's resurrected. And again, this is all happening as soon as he's been buried, basically. And it's happening in the absence of the disciples. The disciples have fled. They aren't standing around waiting like, okay, as soon as they put him in there, we're going to go in there and get the body out and we'll just say he resurrected. They don't have the nerve for any of that. So we know that that's not how it turned out. And so, but what the religious leaders are afraid of is that during those three days, someone's going to get to the body, steal it away, and then pretend like he's resurrected. So before that can even happen, they're convincing the government to set a guard over the, over the tomb. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So without a doubt, we know they made it as secure as they could. If it took having one guard, two guards, ten guards, dogs, whatever it took, they did all they could as secure as they know how. So that there's no question that the tomb was guarded and secure so that no one could get to it. Especially none of his disciples, which again, they forsook him and fled. So it's not like they'd have the nerve to do that anyway. So we know almost from the instance he instant he was put away in the tomb 
There were guards set up there to make sure no one got to his body. Um, no one. Verse 66. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So as quickly as they could, they put guards up there around the tomb with the heavy stone rolled against it. So that it's not like in that time, someone while they're plotting, someone could have got to that stone and moved it out of the way. No, these things are happening, it seems, sequentially, one right behind the other. They, He just died. He's been wrapped up. He's been put in the tomb. A stone's been rolled against the door. And now the sun has set and the, the religious leaders have gotten with the political leaders, the governmental leaders, and secured the tomb to make sure no one can get to it. They've sealed the stone, which presumably they put something around it to keep it from being moved and uh, set a guard. So they've set up human guards there, maybe even uh, other types of guards, dogs or whatnot. They've set them all up there so that um, it's secure as they know how, so that no one can get in and molest the tomb and make up a story. Um, that was the last verse in this chapter. So that's where we'll end this reading. As always, I appreciate you reading along with me and Hope the naked truth is a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. God willing, there's an again. Uh, stay safe. I love you and I'll see you next time. Peace be with you.